As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to From the Rookery End, a podcast all about Watford Football Club brought to you by The Athletic. It's Sunday morning and it has been raining. I don't know if the weather means anything and uh, the mood of this podcast because yesterday Watford lost at home 1-0 to Southampton. My name is John. With me is Colin. Uh, Good morning, everybody. Good morning to Jason also. Good morning. And Michael. They always say, John, try (laughs) something new. And I did try try something new last night. I went to the boxing and there was a guy fighting last night out of Romford, a guy called Johnny Fisher. Uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a heavyweight. He'd won three before last night. He fought this guy, absolutely battered him. Cue gag about the guy who lost showing more fight than Watford FC yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> and we want to dedicate this podcast to the first lady of Watford, Miss Emma Saunders. And we found out yesterday at halftime that that was her final game as the on-pitch announcer at Vicarage Road. And just want to say, Emma, thank you so much for everything that you've done over the last six seasons, particularly last season, where you kept us connected, where you were the wonderful face that we all sat down to in front of our computers to watch Watford's promotion from the Championship back to where we are in the Premier League today. So thank you for everything, Emma. The, you, you know, was, the girls were absolutely right last week. Kate mentioned you know, having you as the voice at Vicarage Road Hearing a, a, a woman's voice on the Tannoy is massive for a huge part of the Watford fandom. So good luck with everything that you're going to do in your future at Sky Sports. Well, it is uh, it's Halloween today. Uh, and, uh, well, mm. was it a horror show? Not quite, but it wasn't a great game of football, uh, was it, Colin? Let's, let's start with the beginning of the game. Colin, you saw that lineup, and you saw basically the team that finished last week away at Everton, uh, except for Dennis, who was replaced by Ismail Assar. Did that excite you? It did. The lineup for those that haven't, that, that stayed away and hid under a pillow yesterday, um, <laughs> we had up front, we had Pedro playing in. In really in the number 10 position, in the position that we've got, we, we've been thinking about two fans. So he was playing mm. in front of Sissoko and Kutska, and on the left was Kucha Hernandez, and on the right, uh, Ismail Hassan and uh, Josh King up front. And I, I thought, oh, that's a good front four. But was it that, though? Did they, did they play that, that, though, Colin? Do you think they actually played with him being deeper? But I, I didn't feel like, it did feel like a front four to me, did not to you? Yeah, it was, it was a, certainly four attacking players and Pedro is young and there were a few signs yesterday in the first half uh, where he actually played quite well when, when we could get the ball and keep it and he was linking up quite well with Kucha at times going forward but going forward wasn't really where the, issue, where the issues uh, lay. I mean, it seems to me what Ranieri is doing at the moment is he's he didn't just keep those players in because they did well in the last 15 minutes at Everton he's obviously looking to find out who he can rely on and what what they can and can't do. And what was clear yesterday by the, sub, the half-time substitutions, he felt that we were they were okay, but he felt that we they weren't doing the defensive work. They weren't keeping uh, Southampton at bay. Those two young players specifically. So he made brought both of them off and brought on uh, Semmer and Cleverly to to try and stop the Southampton raids 
particularly down the wings in the first half. They, they just came down the sides on on both sides, in fact, uh, past Ngakia and Messina was you know was actually doing quite well, but Kucha wasn't really helping him out, and they they were just coming down the wings at will and getting balls into the box. Jason, it did feel though. I don't know why it felt like that midfield was had a gap in it, and that's where they would have gone through us a little bit more because we didn't have that sort of three in midfield. It was like two and a half. Um, well, that's, that's how I felt at least. So what was it, do you think, that we lacked, I suppose, in how they were able to get past us, Jace? I agree with Colin. It was it was coming down the flanks, wasn't it? And it was particularly down their left, our right. You talked about a front four. I, to me, it looked more like a 4-4-1-1 with Cucho and, and Saar sitting deeper. Um, but obviously with with their pace and ability, the, the opportunity to counter-attack that we know Claudio likes to do so much. But I could see what I thought Claudio Ranieri wanted us to set up and what he wanted us to do. I just felt that the players weren't doing that for whatever reason. And that's why we was, we were suffering so much. I thought, particularly down our right-hand side, where Ngakia found himself up against Carl Walker-Peters, who was pushing forward so much. He was he was struggling to contain him, but probably only because they were getting overloads on that side all the time. Nathan Redmond was playing a bit narrower. I thought there were times where Saar had Walker-Peters, but then didn't track him back all the way. There were times where Redmond was drifting inside. Sissoko was picking him up, but then letting him go. He was then finding that space between fullback and centre-back. And sort of, again, giving him overloads, easy ball for Walker-Peters to play into him. That happened a couple of times. It just felt to me like I I could see what I thought Ranieri wanted to do, but we weren't doing it. And you, you sort of talk about those changes at, at half-time. I was of the feeling I wouldn't have changed it then because I, at that point, we're 1-0 down. Lucky not to be 3-0 down. We needed to be try and be more positive I thought the players on the pitch would allow us to be positive. If I was Ranieri, I'd have got stuck into them and tell them to bloody do what they should be doing. Yeah, That's what it felt like to me. See, Mike, you know, you, you uh, quite uh, obviously uh, on the WhatsApp group had one man in particular who you were disappointed with. It was such a funny, it was a frenetic start to the game, wasn't it? It was absolutely madcap, end to end. And I actually thought for the first two or three minutes, Watford popped it around quite nicely. Ben Foster was showing some really nice awareness with his distribution, but down both flanks, picking out uh, players on, on either side of the, of the flanks and, and getting in behind to some of the space that, that Southampton were leaving. Um, and I agree with everything that, that Colin and, and, and Jason have said. Watford just didn't execute the plan that was that was set out to do. And I, But I think for me, one of the big issues for why that didn't come to pass was one of our better players just didn't really seem at the races and and it's I thought Ismail Assar had a had a really curious and quite poor game I think a bit more than that Michael I think it's it's and it's not just this game is it but let's let's focus on Ismail uh, Isma was it him was it the system for him what was it that where you get the mo- why don't we get the most out of him I, I think he's lacking hugely in confidence that's the only having slept on it having given it some some serious thought I think it's the only real way that you can describe his his performances because when he gets on the ball, he knows that he's got the beating of his man pace-wise. More often than not, he knows he's quicker than who he's up against. But for me, every time he gets the ball, he looks completely uncertain of what he's going to do. He doesn't look like whether he's going to drive to the byline and get a ball in, whether he's going to drive forward and get a shot in, whether he's going to beat his man and look for, for someone on the edge of the box. To me, he looks completely nonplussed as to what what his role is, what he's going to do, how he's going to utilise the ball. And I think he got a free kick, didn't he, right on the edge of the box. I don't know how long it was, 25, 30 minutes in. And he sort of, he, he got the ball in space and he, and he, and he ran towards the, the goal and just sort of seemed to run out of, run out of ideas and ultimately fell over just outside the box and, and Kuto Hernandez had a, had a deflected shot on target saved. And I think... The reality is, or what certainly was yesterday, that when we did get Sir on the ball, everything stopped. It collapsed. The, the bit that really sort of really showed me that he wasn't up for this, he wasn't excited. You say confident. I think Ismaila sometimes looks sad. He doesn't look happy. I um, think that's his demeanour, John. I it really is. do. Oh, yeah, it is. But, they, but there was a moment where Ben Foster 
don't know if it's planned, Ben, but he did some uh, goal kicks uh, off the floor. And everyone was sort of on the left-hand side. But all of a sudden, the ball would skew onto the right. And he had the, the, the run of the field in front of him. But it happened at least twice. And at no point at all did he go, get in. I've got room. I've only got one man right. to be. I'm going for it. I think it was telling, John, that the amount of space that he was afforded down that flank. Because previously, I think we felt that clubs have identified Sarr as a real threat and tried to nullify him by sort of uh, by sheer weight of numbers and just making sure that they're focused on him, not giving him the space and, 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 and neutralising his threat. There was acres of space yesterday down that, down that right flank for him to get into. We've said it before, how many times have we seen him knock the ball past the defender and just pin his ears back and go? <laughs> it's, it just doesn't happen, which for me is, is baffling. It's absolutely baffling. I mean, he, for, for ages we've said he's our, he's our biggest threat and most dangerous threat. Yesterday in particular, and I thought against Everton, he made you know, really, really, some really poor decisions, particularly when he was through and, and all he had to do was play Josh King in and he, he tried a, a shot at the, at the wrong time from the wrong angle. Mm. It went, went Very right. And, and that was sort of indicative of, of how it's going for him at the moment. And he was taken off by Ranieri against Everton with, with pretty good, good effects, as it, as it turns out. And interestingly, was kept on this time. And I wonder whether that was a little sort of nod towards him to say, right. Jason, tactically, do you think this is, it's the thing that's hampering him? Is it, is it, do you think he's maybe, you know, he's a young player, not quite sure what he's doing or how to play that role? Or is it just, you know, we always remember... You know, Nigel Pearson sort of just having that one focus of just give it to him and let him do his thing. Do you think we're not playing to him enough? I think I think there's a combination of things. I think the the first half should have suited him in a position he was playing more so. Mike said about the space he was being afforded. Part of that, they say attack is the best form of defence. So perhaps Southampton's tactics were to push Walker Peters up to give Saar something else to think about rather than just how he was going to rinse their defence. And he said, yeah, that, that, that acres of space and, the, and his decision-making was poor, as, as Mike said. I also thought second half, tactically then, perhaps suited him less. I thought with the changes we made, like I said before, I, I wanted to see us give it another 15 minutes with those players because I thought the players that we had on the pitch at the time were more positive when we're trying to chase the game. And I thought with the substitutions that we made, we, we lost a lot of width. And obviously that's going to affect Saar um, because he is best deployed out wide on the right-hand side. What I thought was telling was the, the full-backs uh, and other players just putting in early crosses, looking for our central players to run onto and, and, and try and create chances that way. And I think that was, just, that was just telling from the lack of width that we had in the second half. So I, I, there was a couple of things about Saar uh, which I noticed because I was sitting in, in, the, in the fourth row of the rookery with the... Uh, because I'm normally right at the back, but I sat right down. So second half, I got a very good look at him, just to the the left-hand side of the goal, if you like, as you look at the back of the goal. I'm just to that side, so on his side. And when he decided to come inside, just the positive first, when he when he got the ball and decided to come into more central area or drive into more central areas, that he did scare the living daylights out of Southampton at times. Um, when he stayed out on on his normal right-hand side, I th- I think they felt quite confident they could handle him. So that was one thing I thought that was quite interesting that he was starting to bring the ball in into the middle, but he didn't seem, as Mike really rightly said, he didn't seem to have a clear plan about what he was going to do once he'd done that. So he often lost the ball or was just overcrowded. But the thing that really disappointed me the most, and I have to say, it was it was quite shocking seeing it from sort of 20, 20 yards away. When we had that really good period of pressure where the ball kept coming out from the Southampton box and then we would win it back and then we would come back at them. And it lasted for quite a long time, maybe 15 minutes. We really put them under quite a lot of pressure, not with much quality, but there was certainly an intensity uh, t- to the way we were playing. It was our best period. There was a couple of times where, you know, the, there was a tackle, the ball goes up in the air and Sars just standing there. Just standing there, and, he, and then the ball drops, and he he reacts too late, and 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 it was things like that, and you thought this is there's something really not right about this lad. He's not whether it's whether it's the Newcastle talk. I mean, I can't think of another player in England who gets talked about as much in terms of being transferred. So that's not easy. Uh, the kind of riches that he that he and and the opportunity. So maybe that's having an effect on him. I think he needs some time off. I think he needs some time away. A couple of games, maybe go back to France, clear his head because it's not happening at the moment. I don't think it's tactical, but I'll tell you one thing, and I might be proved wrong and you, you might disagree with me, but I think 
he misses Kiko. Because when Kiko plays, he plays better. And the reason for that is that Jeremy Ngakia, who is developing into, I think, a quite a good player, although he, he, had a, he had a difficult day at the office yesterday, particularly in the first half. I think Jeremy Ngakia is concentrating on his own game because he's developing as a young player and, and wanting not to make mistakes and to do what the coach asks him. What he's not doing is focusing on Saar, whereas when Kiko plays, he gets up there more. He's, he's, he's a, an older, more experienced player, and I think he helps Saar more with the decision-making. I'm sure he's talking to him throughout the game. That's not happening with Ngakia, and I think he's getting isolated. But it was the kind of the sulking, the, the slumping of the shoulders, the not chasing after the second ball. There was a couple of times in towards the end of the game, high ball comes in, and instead of going to challenge for it, he runs off in the other direction as if somehow there's going to be a second ball, but leaving the Southampton player there with the, with the time to either head it or just bring it down. So I was really, I was sort of upset more than disappointed. Just to finish off on, on Saar, we do say he's young. He's 23, which in, in, in footballing parlance isn't isn't actually that young and is, and is the time where you, if you are going to be a top, top player, you really ought to be accelerating through the through the gears and you know we have to we have to say he is in a he is in a Watford side that all too often looks out of its depth if we if we're completely honest that can't be helpful but he's such a curate's egg isn't he at the moment and I think the job of work that we have on now is you know that the Ranieri's to-do list is is getting bigger and bigger and bigger as the as the weeks go past isn't it it's it's if it's not sorting out the defense it's it's how we get the best out of who is now definitely arguably our best player, how do you solve a problem like Ismail Assar? We've, we've asked it a lot and, and I don't think we've ever, we've ever found the answer um, on, on, a, on a consistent level. I don't want to dig him out too much. He's by far and away not the biggest issue that Watford have. But what we said after the Everton game was that our good players have to be playing really well nine times out of ten. And when someone with the, with the obvious talent even if that talent is just express pace that can't be dealt with, we have to use it. We have to find a way of getting it into the game because we're going to move on to talk about the defence, I'm sure, unfortunately, because at the moment we need to score at least one goal to be in with a chance of getting a point. Good point that Mike raises about about Sarah not digging him out too much because he will have bad days at the office. And when he does, we will need other players to step up. And yesterday... I don't think there was anyone else in that team that were better than average at all. As we left, Jason, I said to you, who could you, how do you judge that game? What do you think about the game? And I just felt like nobody was terrible. Nobody was brilliant. It was just a six six or seven out of 10 across the board, which didn't give us that that advantage. Adam Messina had a good game for Adam Messina. It wasn't necessarily something that's going to keep him in the team. Cleverly came on, was Tom Cleverly. Everything we love about Tom Cleverly, all over the place. Every single movement he could do, he was getting that ball. It, you know, Him and Ken coming on, Ken didn't necessarily have the performance that you want him to have to sort of have a shining moment somewhere down the line. The problem I think we found ourselves in by starting with those four up front is that there was no attacking th- second or third or fourth gear that we could even get anywhere near putting on and those were the sort of only substitutions that he can make at that point to change things around I disagree with that John because I think and I was speaking to to someone after the game yesterday who, who made the point quite quite bluntly at half time and, and Jason alluded to it earlier he took two creative players off and bought one on yeah I would have I would have I would have put Tom Cleverley on or I definitely would have taken off one of the front three I wouldn't have taken. I wouldn't have put, and I would have put either Tom Clevy or, or Ozan Tufan on. I don't think I would have gone for Ken that early. That is the substitution that confuddled me a bit. So why? I think we have to ask. I think the good thing about Claudio Ranieri is he's decisive and he is obviously willing to make difficult decisions and and try things. I thought it was harsh on both Cucho and Pedro, neither yeah. of who were having particularly no. amazing games. And I think he'd asked a lot of Pedro yesterday because he was he'd asked him to be almost that extra body in midfield hadn't he in behind in in behind King having to do a dual role I think to 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 to, to add some steel and gumption to, to midfield so that was a, a big ask of him one that I think we all felt he probably could do you know he I love the way that Pedro never takes a backward step he no. he thrives <laughs> on the 
he thrives on adversity, he thrives on getting stuck in, he thrives on throwing himself around and, and being involved. So I totally understand why why he was asked to, to, to play that role. But yeah, I think... The only reason I could see him being taken off at that point was he'd already got a yellow. But that's the only reason I could see why you potentially. would do but that. I think it, with, with hindsight, it felt, it felt like a mistake for exactly the reason Jason outlined earlier and exactly what you said, John. It left us with nowhere to go, really. And so if, if that didn't work, we, there was no way we could switch it up again. And what, what did happen, I thought, for the, in the early parts of the second half after that the double substitution, we got that injection of energy from... Um, from Tom Cleverley, which, you know, he often he was the, the, the most forward player. You know, he just rats around, worked really hard, and I think that, that was, was beneficial initially. And then when Ken came on, he thought, right, OK, we've got some... We know he can beat a man mm. down, down that, left, that left side. He's, he's obviously hamstrung by being so, so one-footed, but he can beat a man. And he thought, right, he's going he's gonna to get down there, get the byline and get some, some balls in. But it just didn't happen. And when it didn't sort of manifest itself in us creating chances, the jig was up, really. There was nowhere. And, and, and as, as, as we've mentioned earlier, the, then the game plan was, was Adam Messina swinging balls in from 35, 40 yards out and, and hoping that we'd, we'd get something on the end of it. And I would say that that, that, that substitution, that double substitution at, at half-time, whilst understanding to a degree why, why he went for it, I think, we have to say on this occasion, for me, it, it backfired. Because overall... He had what the, the McCarthy had one save to make from um, from Fletcher, who was the only thing we could do later in the game. He, he, we went to three at the back and threw Ashley Fletcher on. Lovely touch to mm. to give himself the the chance to shoot, and it was a it was a lovely move. But that was all the keeper had to do for for the entirety of of the match. But there wasn't. I wouldn't say Benford didn't have as, as much to do. He didn't have. A, you know, I don't remember him making a, a, an amazing save. He did let a goal in, but. That centre-back, that defence, Colin, up against what we've been talking about, I don't know if it's me with the past and what I know they can do and where they are and my worry every time the ball goes anywhere near the, the box. You know, the goal did, did come down to just none of them really pushing and closing him down and causing him some sort of problem. I don't know. I mean, I don't know about that. The bloke next to me is going, how's he let him turn? How's he let him turn? It was just a brilliant piece of football which came off. He had easier chances later in the game. I have to say, I, I totally disagree. I totally disagree. Get to the ball. Get to the ball. And they they just didn't react. They stood. Yeah, they were very frightened about giving uh, free kicks away in dangerous areas. I think that was a, certainly a directive that don't let Walprowse have more than one chance at hitting a ball from 20 yards so I think there was a bit of that. They were cautious. I think the defence is one thing, but I think where, where the problem lies is in front of the defence because they're not protected. If you don't protect the back four, you have no one whose job that is, the back four can get very exposed. And I think that's what's been happening in a lot of games. I don't suppose Truster Kong and Cathcart will be our first choice. I would probably personally go for the other two. So many times yesterday where Southampton just had to pass the ball twice and they were right onto the back four. There was no protection. There was no one in the, those two lads in midfield were not providing um, a barrier to Southampton's attacks. It's easy to look at the defence and go, well, they look a bit creaky and they're not very good. No, 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 no. But, it, you know, a team defends as a team and that's we're not doing that. And those two central midfielders, I think, is really where our problem lies. To be honest with you, John, we don't have a midfield. That's That's really our biggest problem. And I think that's the biggest task for Claudio. The defenders are, are what we've got and sometimes they, 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 they did okay. You know, we, we're losing games 1-0. We lost 1-0 against Leeds. We lost 1-0 against Southampton. We're, we're not conceding lots of goals every week, but what we're not doing, what our midfield, our, our absence of a midfield is not protecting the back four and that is a massive problem. Those two chaps are not helping the team at the moment, particularly defensively. It's easy to pass through our midfield. It's easy to get onto our back four. Southampton made a, a determined effort to overload us down the wings and, and to come straight through the middle of us and, and they could and they could do it with a couple of simple passes and that is my biggest worry going forward is that I don't think we have a functioning midfield. And without a functioning midfield, you can't control games, you can't control the ball, and you can't win football I matches. Think, I think, you, we, we, Jason, sort of flippantly is the wrong word, but sort of casually dropped it into conversation that, that Southampton could and should have been three or four nil up at half-time. 
And, and, and that's a massive, massive issue. And Ben Foster used the phrase that Leeds are 1-0 battering. Really, it was, it was that again yesterday. Yeah. And yes, they, Southampton couldn't finish. But if they had have done, they, could, they would have walked away with 3-4-5-0 win yesterday. And no one could have argued. And, and now we're, not, we're coming up against teams who are unable to finish. Now, we got battered by Newcastle. We got battered by Leeds. We've been battered against that by, by, by Southampton. I'm going to call you up there, Michael. You, you think, I don't think we were battered by Southampton. We were for a period of the game where we lost our head after the game. But what I will say, Mike, is that it's interesting because you look at this. You were looking at this in the entire season. And you've just mentioned two other games there played under a different head coach. And we are only the third game in to Ranieri and what he's doing. And we said very early on, you know, he would have learned a lot from that and he is still trying to learn. Yeah, I, and I, I, I do go along with that. I get where you're going because you have that, I, we see it all the time on the WhatsApp group. You know, there is that, that focus on the players and you can sort of blame the players for what came before Ranieri because they were the only thing that were around. It wasn't a great performance, but as I say, it, it wasn't a five, it wasn't a four, it was a six and a seven and that's not going to necessarily win you a game when you've got a functioning a team with a long-term manager with just the way of doing it. They don't have a spark. They had a lot of sixes and sevens and one, eight, nine moment. You're being generous giving them sixes and sevens, but I think the, the, the overall and, and the big problem here is that we're getting battered in terms of the actual pattern of play and chances created, but we're not getting battered in terms of scoreline, which, which Colin rightly points out. 1-0 against Southampton, 1-0 against Leeds, a, a draw against Newcastle that could have gone either way, despite the pattern of play in all those games being almost almost yeah. entirely the opposition creating the chances. So for, by by hook or by so that what that indicates is we're playing against teams who are in poor form, who who, who can't finish, or so are in and around the same situation as us. That makes it all the more criminal when we and I and I maintain this that it was a mistake for the goal. We weren't quick enough to close it down. That will be the difference this season, for somehow getting something out of these games when we are up against it, against a team that we would recognise, we would think we should be on a par with in a, in a game like this and really taking the game to them. We were nowhere near it, yet if we'd, if we'd snuffed out that chance like we should have done, we could have somehow come away with a point and we didn't. And we've done that a lot this season and you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a new head coach. He's got, I've said earlier, he's got a long list of things to, to do. We've, we've be, already, we've bemoaned the, the, the attack. Collins explained we haven't got a midfield and I'm moaning about the defence. So you add all that together and it, it doesn't make for, for great listening. But they've got to cut out these mistakes. They've got to cut out the, these little, the, these sections. Because if you mm. do that, then, then we're still in the game despite everything. You know, we're not we're not miles off getting some results somehow. You know, if you look at the if you look at the results, we could have nicked something against Leeds. We could have won against Newcastle. We could have nicked a draw yesterday against Southampton had we been switched on. And arguably, we would have deserved nothing from any of those games. But we would have got those valuable points. And that's that's what this season for me is going to be a, going to be about. It's it's we we need to be able to take our opportunities, whatever they are, whether that's so. What we did at Everton last week. We completely we took advantage of a complete capitulation by Everton, which was great. But what we haven't done is taken advantage of other poor teams being profligate in front of goal. And we're, not every team is going to be like that. And we just have to be sharper and better. It's, we're, not, we're perhaps not as miles away as, as we might suggest by, by, by listening to us. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham premieres May 2nd on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. From the Rookery End, a podcast about life following Watford FC. Remember, you as a listener to From the Rookery End can get a discount on a subscription to The Athletic. All you have to do is go to theathletic.com forward slash Rookery End uh, and there you get a current offer of a third off. That's 33% off. And currently on the website, along with all the normal coverage that is there, that you know, all Adam's writing about Watford, but also some of the best sports writers in the country, uh, what they are writing about the great sport that we love of football. Uh, there's a lot about Black History Month and the articles on The Athletic is a, is a whole series of them celebrating the UK Black History Month. There's a fantastic article uh, that Adam wrote with the former Watford doctor, Matthew Ogensanya, who is a doctor in the, uh, the relegation season so plenty there about head coach changes and all the reaction that happened to the pandemic Uh, there's also an article there uh, finding out about why Andre Gray talks about if England call there's no argument but if Jamaica it's an inconvenience and and Andre reflects on his decision to represent Jamaica how racism manifests itself in football and what Black History Month means to him. If you want to read that, along with everything else, then do head to theathletic.com forward slash rookerend if you aren't already a subscriber. And of course, remember, you can listen to these podcasts absolutely ad-free via The Athletic website and The Athletic app. Slightly strange yesterday, John, wasn't it? Because we had um, a minute's silence for Memorial Remembrance Sunday, and obviously it's not November yet, but we don't have a home game until the 20th of November. A wreath was brought onto the pitch and the last post was played and the players stood at the centre circle and we remembered those who have served our country and who have fallen, made the ultimate sacrifice. All the things that we know about Remembrance Sunday and I, I always find it intensely moving. But the chap who brought the wreath out is a, a lifelong Watford fan. I got in contact with him to ask him about his time in, in the RAF because he's been in the RAF since 1978. And as far as he knows, he's the longest serving member of the RAF uh, in a continuous way. His name is Chris Adams. He's been uh, a Watford fan, as I say, all his life. He's been in RAF since 1978. And he sent me this lovely email sort of describing some of the challenges that he's had supporting Watford while uh, on postings abroad inside. Sardinia and in Holland and Belgium, places like that. As you say, Colin, very moving uh, moment as it always is. Uh, but this is fantastic for us. You know, Colin's got this, and and you know, hearing someone's story about what it it takes to be a Watford fan is wonderful. And if you have a a similar story, it might be one. Uh, it might be as as Chris did many ways to try and uh, follow Watford from abroad. And uh, then do get in touch at Watford Podcast uh, on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and on Facebook. Uh, we want to hear your stories. Uh, so this is Colin. Uh, a fresh actor uh, with Chris's story of four decades of trying to follow Watford whilst in the RAF. I joined the Royal Air Force in 1978 and took the Queen's shilling at an office in Station Road, Watford. And quite quickly, I had my first challenge as a Watford fan. That famous 1978 2-1 away win in the League Cup against Manchester United. Well... The game clashed with my basic training at RAF Swinderby in Lincolnshire. But I wasn't going to miss the game, so I was smuggled out in the back of a laundry van and was met by my mates on the A46. Looking back, it must have looked like a scene from The Great Escape and my RAF career could well have ended before it had even begun. When Watford went on their legendary run in Europe, I managed to get to Kaiserslautern, which was great, but subsequent games in Sofia and Prague were a no-no as the Cold War was still raging, so I had no real chance of being able to travel. In hindsight, I should have just gone, but I always have this vision of me wearing a Watford scarf, being handed back to the West across a bridge in exchange for Soviet spies. I've had four overseas tours that always presented challenges regarding my passion for the club. Sardinia was interesting. At the time, there was no direct flights back to the UK, so once a month I had to jump on an aircraft to get me to Rome, then up to Heathrow, sometimes via Geneva and onto the game from there. 
If I couldn't make the game, but we were the radio commentary on that day, I'd get myself to a payphone, ring my mum, who would then place the receiver by the radio, and I'd throw tens of thousands of lira coins into the pay box. Ridiculous when I think back, and I'm sure Sir Elton John didn't have this problem, hooking into games from his residence in LA. Happy to say, though, that I saw all of England's games during Italia 90, as it was on my doorstep. JFC Brunson in southern Holland was an interesting posting for me, along with some tough logistical challenges. This was generally my routine for 3pm home games. 1. Leave my house in southern Holland at 4am Saturday morning and drive to Liège in Belgium. 2. Take the train from Liège to Brussels. 3. Jump on the Eurostar to Waterloo. 4. Take the underground from Waterloo to Euston. 5. Jump on the train from Euston to Watford Junction. 6. Walk from Watford Junction to the stadium. 7. CS lose 3-0 at home and reverse the journey. 8. If all went well, and often it didn't, and I'd have to spend the night on a rail station bench, I'd be back at home in Holland at 2am Sunday morning. Every single minute was worth it though. Last week uh, on From the Rookin, we had the interview with Kelly uh, Sommers and Kate Lewis, all about life as a, a female, as a woman who supports Watford. Uh, and thank you so much for everyone's feedback. Uh, it certainly seems to have uh, hit the button uh, with a few of you. So much, Adam wrote a whole article on it to share his feelings on it uh, on The Athletic. So yeah, thank you again. And again, thank you, thank you, thank you to Kate uh, and Kelly. But Mike, we don't want it to stop there, do we? No, I think the, the sort of buzzword, and I hate hate calling it that, but I think there's a risk it can be just that unless we we keep the momentum going, is allyship. It's about um, taking responsibility, educating ourselves and learning about what we can do to make sure that everyone enjoys their their time at, at Watford. And with that in mind, there was an event at the start of October at, at, at Chelsea. Um, I think it was hosted in conjunction with the Premier League and several other London, other London clubs. Um, and it's called about From Allyship to Action. And this one was aimed at the LGBT plus um, community. Uh, and I, that really sort of caught my attention from allyship to action. What are the practical steps that we can take to make sure that we are being good allies in, in real life? Um, so I thought it was important that we, we kept up the momentum. And uh, yeah, you spoke to Callum uh, from the Proud Hornets, who I think they're about four years into their uh, their, yeah. their their work. Uh, they were set up to support LGBT fans uh, at Watford and basically fight against any discrimination that there is in football. Yeah. That event at Stamford Bridge, hosted by Claire Balding, and you started Mike by asking him about that event and how it went. The event was held at uh, Stamford Bridge in one of their venues there. It was quite a cool place, and it was organised by Chelsea and their LGBT supporters group. And it was for mainly London groups, people from Brentford there, Arsenal, Spurs and a couple of other ones. And the purpose of it was just to have a few different chats on a couple of different topics with a sort of LGBT theme as the heart of it, but gender and also uh, race in it as well. And just to talk about how it's more than just, you know, us working just within our own little bubble that can improve the sport, how working together collaboratively and also with allies from you know the, with the straight uh, white or male can help further the cause of what we're all trying to achieve which is equality and acceptance at the end of the day and i think that's why it really struck a chord with me uh, callum because i am i'm white middle-aged straight 2.4 kids what really struck me about that the event and why i was disappointed i couldn't go was that it's sort of like how can i in effect how can i help how can i provide meaningful support to, to 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 move things forward and and so was there any sort of specific takeaways for, from the event from those discussions i think something that was sort of quite um striking for me and it, it's something that i like to think of myself as quite a liberal you know very forward-thinking person but i i think i was just hearing some of the realities of what we call it intersectionalities have like as being you know a white gay guy you know not i don't identify as trans or non-binary or anything so hearing how people who are maybe, you know, black and gay or female and gay, how it is very different for them. And so I was like, whilst I'm, you know, I'm doing the best I can do to try and promote the LGBT aspect of equality, how, how crucially important it is to work together to achieve the goals. Because I'm, in terms of a minority, fairly lucky that I'm, can be, I could be fairly conspicuous if I want to be. But if I was, you know... A woman or black or not white, I'd struggle a lot more. They have a lot more I guess, eyes on them. Like it's a much more dangerous place to be necessarily than I than I can necessarily. I could feel safe or fit, blend in and try and feel safe if I wanted to. 
whereas they could not. So it was eye-opening to realise just how bad it can be because you see it in the news, but yeah, it was quite, quite alarming to hear quite how horrible it can be. So in terms of what I can do, just taking me as a, as a case study, it, it strikes me that it's about maybe taking a little bit of time to really understand the realities because if you're surprised by it, I'm certainly going to be surprised by it. And I think there's a, there's a rather telling and unfortunate stat that, that Watford have publicised recently that there's been a report of discrimination of some description at every single Watford first team fixture this season, which is, it may come as a surprise to, to some people, which I think, I guess is good in some ways. But the flip side of that is, if you are surprised by it, you need to understand that it, that's, that's, that's the, the, the stark reality, isn't it? And it's the first step, perhaps recognising that there really is a problem, Callum. Is that, is that fair? I think it's a really sort of tough, big topic, because I think you, you said that stat to me, and it did sort of, it sort of shocked me in a way, and I took a moment just to sort of think about it. I guess sort of think about it within the context of what's happening, not just in football, but outside of football as well at the moment. And for the last six years, hate crimes against all minority groups have gone up massively. I think it was about I think like 19% uh, from 2019-2020 just against the LGBT community. And it's getting worse this year. Like Every weekend I look at my phone after on a Sunday and see a gay couple has been attacked or... There was a, a gay man was murdered in London recently for being gay. And so when I put it into football terms, I'm sort of, it doesn't surprise me at all. And I always like to think that Watford's a fairly good club, like quite, you know, the, the family club, always quite an accepting club. And I think that is still true to an extent, but it is something that it's deep in society and also deep in football. And it'd be silly to think that Watford is exempt from that problem. And it's a problem that we all need to work really hard to fight and I think doing stuff like you're doing now like the talks with the women of Watford group and with our group and any other sort of diversity group are key to have because it platforms us it gives us the opportunity to have a voice that we wouldn't necessarily always have but also you clearly are very on board of all of these things so it's good to show that you're like an example like you're setting a very good example of how fans should behave. This is a difficult discussion and a, and a potentially difficult question, Callum, but what are some of the examples of going to a, a, a game if you're part of the LGBT community? What, what are some of the, uh, the issues, the, the threats, the concerns, not necessarily that you've had at Watford, but you, know, you mentioned the, the London clubs getting together at that event in October. What, what are some of the examples of, of the realities of, of what people are having to, to deal with? In terms of just sort of like looking at it in the sort of Watford perspective, there's I've never really had anything necessarily directed at me at Watford, which has been good. I have heard the odd comment. The day we launched, actually, I think four years ago now, against Manchester United, I did hear a homophobic comment, which I didn't report because I just felt it was a little bit... I didn't know at the time, not how seriously it would be taken, but I just didn't know who said it, and I just thought it was stupid to think I couldn't be bothered with the faff because I sh- the day it was, I should have I should have done it. And we also had an incident of online homophobia against us, which uh, did get dealt with by the police in the end earlier, I think it was this year. And the club dealt with that fantastically. They were brilliant with helping us find out who it was and also offer the right sort of punishment. So it wasn't just, it was more of an educational thing in the end. And it was a good apology, so which was really nice to see. But then in terms of other clubs as well, I've heard a lot worse stuff from other groups. When I've been at QPR before, because uh, my focus in my play for had a partnership with them. I've heard a lot more aggressive homophobia there, uh, unfortunately. And when I went to an England game with the Three Lions Pride, somebody got into a, I guess you'd call it a fracas. It wasn't quite a fight, but um, it was more than an argument with somebody that was giving a lot of homophobic abuse in Club Wembley, which was quite disappointing to see. So it's a sort of a space where you think there might be a bit more calm. Like it's, I don't, I don't know why it just feels like a place where you'd get more respect especially when you're a guest of the FA so it is something that does happen fairly regularly as you say I don't know exactly how many of the reports each match are homophobic uh, I imagine it's definitely a few but every match having an incident of discrimination is just not it's not really good enough and it's pretty disappointing from from a Watford perspective I think. It does feel like it's it, it is obviously a wider societal issue and there are lots of of issues around education that obviously impact on this on this situation. But in terms of, you know, if we're at a football match, say for example, we're at the at the um, at the England game, and that's that's happening. 
are people stepping in to to try and defuse the situation is that something that would be would be helpful are you seeing some of that or do you wish you there was more of that in terms of again using it's a bit of a buzzword and and part of the reason i wanted to talk to you was to avoid buzzwords because we see you know there are rainbow laces and then every club has a has some sort of slogan which is which is admirable and brilliant and, and as you mentioned we're wholeheartedly behind it but the reality is if you're at an england game or a watford game and you're not enjoying it because someone is being homophobic it's not working and the, and the reality is that there is someone being at the, at the least unpleasant and and perhaps much much worse than that are you seeing people stepping in and saying come on mate that's not you know that isn't appropriate think about what you're saying um would you hope to see see that more uh, i definitely have seen it before whether it be on the football pitch uh, or off it but i think it doesn't necessarily happen enough and Kelly and Kate uh, made the point uh, the other day saying that when a woman gets sort of angry about something, like rightfully angry, they're seen as hysterical. Whereas if a man does it, it's passionate, a good, a good thing almost. When I think if a, if a gay person or uh, you know, someone from the LGBT community gets upset or annoyed, they'll get called, again, hysterical or sensitive or just sort of their complaints will almost be battered away by the person, that, the aggressor and possibly their friends. So I think if somebody that's not from the community does just step in, and like if it's their mate or someone behind them or next to them and just says, that's not on, like don't say that. I think that would have, it would hold a lot more weight. It's totally wrong. It should hold the same weight no matter who it comes from. But it's just, I think, the reality of the situation. That's why allies are so critical to have because no matter what minority group you're from at a football ground, I think it holds more weight if you get defended by somebody that is not from your group. Education is is obviously such a crucial part of this and taking away, perhaps let's be charitable, some of the confusion and misunderstanding about, uh, about the community. Do you think that football as a whole is, is doing enough? I mean, what, what's it like working with, with, with Watford? It strikes me that they're, they're pretty good, pretty open uh, and, and forward thinking. What's the reality of, of, of working with Watford, Callum? We're definitely blessed, I'd say, uh, to have initially started the conversations with Dave Messenger, who I think will probably get shouted out on all these podcasts as being a hero of the club, really. So for us, it's been great working with 1881 as well. They've been fantastic to work with. It's been a really good effort all round. I think Watford are maybe fighting the good fight in a sort of arena that's maybe not necessarily always doing the right thing, because... The recent takeover of Newcastle, I know it comes up, it's come up a lot lately, with the Premier League signing off with the regime that has is accused uh, of doing terrible things to all sorts of people, including the LGBT community. I think to sign off a takeover like that and then go and talk about equality and acceptance is a bit of a slap in the face because it just doesn't feel... It feels so disingenuous now. Rainbow Laces, from their perspective, is just a box-ticking exercise. For clubs, it might be different, and I, I think it is. For like clubs like Watford, Spurs are really good. Teams like that, who are really trying to push it, are doing it for the right reasons. But I now, after that takeover, I do wonder if the Premier League really mean what they say. Forgive me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but it, there's almost a, a bit of sense of, of resignation in terms of when the bigger picture is looking difficult it, it, when you feel like you're making you're taking maybe a couple of steps forward and then and then several very very big steps back it, is it more important than ever then that on the ground in reality in normal life the way that we can affect things like you and I can affect things when we go to a game that that allyship and that and being an active ally is is more important than ever because it's it's so dispiriting to hear you upset about the, the the overall picture but if the match day experience is better for for more people within the community uh, that that feels like it can be that that's action that that we can take certainly you know from from the straight community they can be active and supportive and that's that's real change isn't it then definitely yeah. knowing that you've got a friend somewhere or you've got someone to have your back if something bad is said to you is so important and I think it would encourage people to go to games more like having groups like the Proud Hornets you definitely see you know on Twitter sometimes people will say they've gone to a game for the first time because of a group 
like the Proud Hornets or the Gay Gooners, teams like that. So having the more people that show support, you know, even if that's just a, following us on Twitter, tweeting about maybe Rainbow Laces, like saying, you know, you see football players, a, a player came out today in Australia, uh, Josh Cavallo, and players like Raphael Varane, Jordan Henderson, Gerard Piquet have been tweeting their support, saying how brave he is. If I saw a fan retweet that, I'd be like, oh, well, I know they're an ally. So I know that they they would probably have my back and they would call out any comments if it was on Twitter or hopefully in person that was said against uh, someone from the community. So yeah, having that sort of knowledge that you're in a friendly space is so, so important. Having that visibility of allyship is, it means it means a lot to, to people like me. Callum, just to wrap up, it's I think you mentioned it, it's four years ago that you founded um, Proud Hornets and going from from strength to strength with the with the support of the club and and fellow fans, I think it's it's fair to say. How can people get involved? What roles can people play? Um, where can people sign up and, and and be a part? Pre-COVID, at least, I think we are starting to do it more now uh, as COVID restrictions ease. At least we tend to meet up in pubs before games, uh, often the Escort Tavern, but also in the bunker. We do do occasionally. So that's it. if you ever want to do a social thing, we we welcome anybody that wants to come. Families are obviously welcome too. In terms of how to find us online or get in touch with us, we have a website which you just Google Proud Hornets. We are the top. Uh, we'll be the top one in the feed, and uh, we're most active on Twitter and Instagram in terms of social media. And that's again at Proud Hornets, and you can follow us there. And if you message us there, we'll be happy to talk about anything you want. Yes, a huge thanks to Callum in, in the same vein as, as, as thanks again to, to Kate and Kelly because for me it's a, an, an education um, I'm not part of the LGBT community I'm, I'm not a female so I, I don't know what it's like to be a Watford supporter a football supporter um, in, in that situation and the only way I'm going to find out the only way we're going to find out is by asking and, and educating ourselves so thanks once again to Kate and Kelly and thanks to to Callum for so for bringing it to life, really, what 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 the challenges are, and and it's it's just so sad and and dispiriting, isn't it, to know and to realise and to accept that there is incidents of of homophobia at, at football matches, and it's it's just unacceptable. It really, really is unacceptable. And I think it's the more I think the more we realise it is happening, I think the more we become able to, to deal with it. We have to accept it's happening first, accept that it's who, who's responsible for it, and then to make sure that we're not one of them. And, and, by, do it, and by educating ourselves, by learning, by listening, I think, is, is probably the, the easiest and most important first step. Listen. Listen to other people's experience. Callum had had, had experience, um, examples of, uh, of experiences that, that friends and colleagues and other people he knew had, had had. And it's important we take those on board and absorb them and understand them. It's an, it's an ongoing process, I think. Lots of people go on about the, you know, the Black Lives Matter and taking the knee. It's not working, thinking that it's a quick fix. And these things aren't a quick fix. So, um, again, we, we're, we're not going to solve it on from the recurring, but we're hopefully going to do our bit. And if you are a Watford fan and you have a certain situation that you'd like to talk about, um, that uh, you'd like to share your experience, what it's like to be a Watford fan with whatever it is and wherever you are, then do get in touch uh, at, at Watford Podcast on Twitter. You can DM us or Instagram or on Facebook. Get in touch and we'd like to share more stories uh, on from the recurring. We'll try and sort out a few more uh, in the coming weeks. Um, but we also... Like we'd like to, Mike, we'd like to know about people's current experiences, but we'd like, to, we'd like to know about the past as well. Maybe that's our age again coming into it because I don't know, <laughs> history has become a bigger thing for me as I've got older. The Watford Treasury uh, is out and uh, the, the eighth volume is out. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it, Mike? And a very unique magazine that we have as Watford fans. Just another example of the, the creativity and the, and the passion that Watford supporters have, just bringing. Yeah, history to life in just a glorious, magnificent, beautiful way, really. They're just wonderful objects to, to have in your hand. Um, and they get even better when you when you open them. Just the stuff inside is so evocative. For me, it fills in a lot of gaps in, in Watford history that I didn't really know 
much about. Um, it gives me reminders about other stuff, wonderful writing, wonderful pictures. Another example of one of the things that we're, we're very lucky to have as, as Watford supporters, I think. It, it's hard for me to describe other than beautiful, I think, is probably the best way of, I, I, can, I can do it. Well, it is hard to describe. So I had a chat with Jeff Wicken, the editor. Um, yeah, last week, a massive thud came through my, uh, my letterbox and I ran to the, the doormat and there was a brand new Watford treasury. And uh, I had to find out a little bit more about what was inside this latest fancy glossy edition of the Watford treasury. Jeff, I've got a copy of the latest Watford Treasure in front of me. It's quite heavy. There's a lot in it. For anyone who hasn't read read it before or know that much about it, what what is the Watford Treasury? Well, we bill it as a visual history of a football club. Uh, It's a magazine or possibly even a book because it's an A4 perfect bound beautiful thing with 128 pages, which... Uh, happens to weigh six hundred and fifty-five grams. This particular <laughs> issue, I had to I had to weigh it for Royal Mail purposes. Covers all aspects of the the history of the club, going way back to Victorian times, uh, the, the very early days, um, right up to the current time. And the latest issue has got a major feature on on last season. Yeah, I mean that's it. That is now te- technically history, isn't it? Uh, and it's a big chat. Well, not even big chat. He he wrote it himself, uh, Mr. Tommy Mooney on last season, the promotion season 2020-21. Yes, that's right. And we thought, yes, whilst it is a history magazine, on ostensibly, uh, we can't fail to recognise the fact that Watford got promoted last season. And yet it was a very, very unusual season because apart from a, two or three games in the middle, none of us had the opportunity to experience any of it in person. We thought we'd ask Tommy, as someone who did experience it in person, to tell the story of 2021 through his eyes. Having said which, he then revealed that he didn't experience it in person other than about 10 minutes worth, because the team on Hive Live rapidly found that if they were commentating in real time, that was in advance of the feed that everybody was seeing on their screens, and they would be commentating on things in such a way that uh, the audio didn't match up with uh, the video. So we know it was a goal before we saw it? That's right. So they very rapidly, he explains, had to change tag and basically watch the feed at the same time as anyone uh, watching Hive Live was seeing it. So as he was saying, he drove to, or as he writes, he drove to Vicarage Road for every home game and then watched it on television, <laughs> oh, commentating no. on it. <laughs> well, at least he knows how we feel, I felt, I suppose, in, in many ways. But being a little bit closer. How, how do you think he, he took last year a man who, who won promotion from that division to the Premier League or the uh, chap, uh, Premiership when he won it? How, how do you think he feels about that? Well, judging by what he's written, he was very happy. I mean, he feels very connected with the club. He writes writes about it very nicely and, you know, his favourite moments and how uh, he uh, enjoyed being part of it as he saw it, uh, the personalities that were involved, what were the turning points, but also some of the, uh, the difficulties that were brought about by the particular circumstances in which uh, the season got played out. Now, the, the other uh, sort of big article that caught my eye, there's, there's a chat with uh, Craig Cathcart about the, the another promotion season, the 14-15, but there's a lady mm. you interviewed called Caroline Gillies. She's one of those ladies who I recognise the face of. From, from my time as a child and having the yearbooks at Watford, you can see all the members of staff. Now, we've had Anne Swanson on before, and she was one of the big characters and the big women around Watford Football Club back in the 1980s. But who was Caroline then? Well, Caroline was hired as marketing manager uh, in the early 1980s. It's believed that she was the first ever marketing manager at any football league club. You know, she brought a professional marketing perspective in a way that seems absolutely normal these days to football, given that she had experience in other industries. But this was unique in, in football at the time. And she had responsibility for sort of all aspects of the way the club presented itself to the public, which I suppose went back to Elton John and then Graham Taylor thinking about these things and the uh, relationship that the club wanted to have and how it wanted to project itself. She was the person who was brought in to execute that. The interview itself is conducted by Ed Cohen, who she brought in as PR manager initially. It's him interviewing her about uh, some of the things that they and uh, the rest of the management group were doing in the 
1980s. You know, this thing about interviews, you know, it's, it's who interviews someone sometimes can make much, much of a difference. And Ed, having been there with her, uh, does bring out some, some things that if, if I'd sat down with her, I wouldn't have got the same, same out of that and same sort of insight from her. It's, it's made, because like I said, the Watford Treasury is a visual history. There is writing, of course. Um, but the, the pictures, that, particularly of Caroline, are wonderful. They're really throwback. But you can just see, or see her. There's one of her. She's part of the team photo. All the boys are looking at her, whatever she's doing with Graham Taylor, like she's sort of like a little bit in charge of him. <laughs> and they're, they sort of look like they're all in awe of whatever she's doing. But there's some amazing, for me, of the age that I am, 42, amazing to sort of see the, the photos of all the staff. And like I say, she's one of these faces that I saw uh, a lot in the, uh, the programme or in the, the handbook that came out every single year, which... Yeah, it, it is fantastic. Something from the recent, something from the 1980s. What's, the, what's the, one of the far, far back history articles that are, that are in this volume eight of the Watford Treasury? Well, the one that goes furthest back is uh, a feature about A.T.B. Dunn. Now, he was a, a gentleman amateur, really. Uh, he played in the FA Cup final for the Old Etonians in 1883. And I think two, maybe two FA Cup finals. And you know, one of these gentlemen who, who played for a different team every week, according to what he fancied doing and who asked him. He was obviously known somewhat to some of the people at Watford Rovers, and they would recruit him to play in the big Hearts County Cup matches against Hoddesdon and uh, the big rivals of the time, St Albans. And he was asked to play in a match in 1892 against St Albans, but was unable to do so because he was selected to captain England on the same day and had to go to Wrexham to play uh, for England against Wales and therefore therefore had to miss the um, the Watford Rovers game. So uh, you could say that uh, we were being disrupted by international call-ups even as early as 1892. Yeah, I mean, th- 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 these aren't photographs of 1892 in, in, this, in there, but it's a wonderful pictures. But the, the, the whole feeling of the complete history, I suppose, for me, that I get whenever I read the, the Watford Treasury. Any other sort of highlights that people should, should grab a copy? Where, actually, where can we grab a copy of it? Because I'll get mine sent because I'm a subscriber. How else can people get a copy of the Watford Treasury? Well, people can certainly subscribe. We're online at thewatfordtreasury.com. You can buy individual issues or three-issue subscriptions. And the other magazine that we do, YBR, is also available there. Um, If you want to buy a physical copy, uh, have it in your hands right away, you can get them at Watford Museum and also at the Hornets Shop, who uh, have quite a good supply of them, online or in person. What other things are we going to see in in this volume 8? There's a very nice article about uh, Watford's visit to Northwich, Victoria in 1977, which um, was a great embarrassment at the time, but also in effect a turning point because uh, Graham Taylor came in about uh, six months later and everything changed. There's also an appreciation of Dixie Hale, who passed away recently, a story about the Supporters Trust in the 2000s, the first floodlights in the 50s, and a couple of pieces about overseas trips uh, Watford's very first overseas trip to a competitive game was an FA Cup match at Newport on the Isle of Wight in 1956. <laughs> so one of the fans who went to that game by train and underground and boat and tram and bus uh, writes about uh, that experience. And then there's the second piece that sort of juxtaposes with that, I suppose, uh, about a lot of the worldwide trips that uh, were taken on in the 1980s. So only 30 years on, really, from going by boat to the Isle of Wight. They were playing in the Great Wall of China Cup. A whole range of stuff covering every era in the club's history, as we say. Jason, what do you think Mr Ranieri is going to be doing this week uh, to get everyone ready for this game away at Arsenal? Because it is a bigger club. They are on... Uh, a good run of, of a good vein of form. Uh, what do you think he's going to be doing with that with those, those, that squad this week? <laughs> Who knows? It's Claudio Ranieri. He'll probably have a little tinker, won't he? Whereas we went from Everton to um, to the game on Saturday in a very positive mood, and he sort of obviously took that, took the players that he could that finish that game, and, and sort of 
turned that into a team that he thought could beat Southampton. Obviously, that didn't work. And and for me, it's really hard to find any positives out of out of yesterday to to then take that into the game at Arsenal. And of course, Arsenal have hit form at exactly the wrong time for us. Kind of falls into the way he likes to play, being defensively solid and then trying to hit them on the counter. Arsenal will will, will try and dominate us, I'm sure, and perhaps that will lead into the way that, that Ranieri will want to set us up. Perhaps he needs to do what I wanted to wanted him to do at half time yesterday, which was yeah, get that core group of players get the players that can make a difference for us and tell them to do their bloody job again. We need to be solid, otherwise Arsenal will just tear us a new one and then take the opportunities where and when we can. Michael, are you uh, looking forward to a trip to uh, the uh, the Emirates? I absolutely am, John. Yeah, like, like I look forward to every Watford game and hearing from, from Chris, it was an absolute... I mean, Colin mentioned he's the longest-serving... Um, RA, a member of the RAF um, in, in a serving capacity. Well, I think his commitment to Watford, I think, is more impressive <laughs> and, and perhaps even more taxing than his, his role in the, in the RAF. But that is a perfect reminder about what football is and why we do it. You know, he, Chris had moved hell and high water to, to, get to, to get to Watford games. And we've, we've all done it in sort of varying degrees. And we do it because we love it. We do it whether Watford are abject or whether they're amazing. We, we love it when Watford win, lose or draw. It's about being there, it's about, about supporting your team. And I think it's important to remember at times like this when things are going relatively difficultly, difficultly. remember we're still outside the, the relegation zone in the Premier League for, for heaven's sake. It's, it's important to remember that football is still enjoyable. That said, obviously, we go to Arsenal with a, with a bit of trepidation. And I, know, and I think Jason summed it up probably very well at the start of the, the podcast by, by suggesting that effectively the players didn't do what Claudio Ranieri wanted, him, wanted them to do. And that's the big question. Can he coach this side into a unit that is capable of being competitive uh, in the matches that we need them to be competitive in? So far, there are, there are definitely more questions uh, than answers. But that's not to say that, that, that we can't turn it around. Massive, massive job, I'd say, for, for Claudio Ranieri. He'll be well aware of that yesterday. He will have learned not much against Liverpool for reasons we've discussed. Probably actually not much against Everton either because of the nature of Everton did what we had to do. I think yesterday will have been the one where he will wake up this morning scratching his head thinking, right, the job of work is a, is a large one here. Over to him. We've talked about his, his experience. Um, he's been brought in to do a job. He knows, he's, he's, he's spoken about how he understands how the Pozzos work, so he understands that he's been given a squad to, to meld into something that he can, that can keep in the Premier League. And it's, and it's over to him this week, isn't it? And uh, yeah, we, we, again, once again, we find ourselves in a situation saying we need to see some sort of response. We need to see um, a performance that we can take positives out. Because when Jason's saying he's struggling to find a positive, you know that's... That's that's serious, and you know they, they, we've said it time and time again. But these run of games, we're expecting what one point at best out of out of five, and and even then, I think the reality is we're expecting none. What we need is performances, and what we need is to see players getting better and little patterns of play getting better, and and players responding to situations better. That's it feels like almost the best that we can hope for, and that's and that's what Ranieri has to has to focus on. We know Arsenal are a bit weird. Catch them on the wrong day at the wrong time, and 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 we can be on the wrong end of a thumping. But also, we we we're more than capable of, of springing a surprise ourselves. And and Ranieri is 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 tactically astute. Some half decent players at our disposal. If we can get that counter attack, then then who knows? We might be able to ask some ask some questions of Arsenal. But of look, of course, I'm excited. There's always the next game, and uh, whilst there's always that next game, uh, I'm going to be uh, I'm going to be up for it, looking forward to it. So, come on, bring it on. Thank you much, Colin. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jason. Uh, thank you. And thank you, Michael. You are We're back on Thursday with another podcast with Adam Leventhal to see what's been going on in the news uh, around Watford Football Club this week. Uh, so do make sure you uh, set your Thursday uh, reminders uh, to have a listen to that. This weekend podcast where it's us as fans, we're reacting to it as we've done for, for many years now. Uh, and Thursday is where we have a chat with Adam to find out all about the, the deeper stories around Watford Football Club, the club we support wholeheartedly. Come on, you all! Thank you.
The Athletic.